Welcome to Asset Framing, Engaging Students in the Art History Classroom with Celia Starr and Chris Pengett. We will spend a few moments introducing ourselves before discussing examples of asset framing as a form of pedagogy. Celia Starr received a BA and MA from San Francisco State University and a PhD from the University of Iowa. This is where we met and began our conversations. Starr has been teaching art history at the University of San Francisco for 18 years. Named one of the top professors in 15 noteworthy art professors in San Francisco, she specializes in modern, contemporary, African, and transnational or traveling artists with an emphasis upon issues of gender, race, ethnicity, and class. You will find that Starr is particularly interested in artists who cross cultural boundaries and the importance of place. Her book, Frida in America, The Creative Awakening of a Great Artist, which was published in 2020 by St. Martin's Press, delves into Frida Kahlo's personal and creative breakthroughs while living in the United States. And as I understand it, this book is now being translated into Italian. Thank you. Um, Chris Pingetch finished their BA at the University of Virginia and an MA and PhD at the University of Iowa. Professor Pingetch has taught at Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa for 26 years and was the recipient of Cornell's Exemplary Teacher of the Year in 2018. I'm not surprised. Their main areas of research focus on early modern Italy and contemporary feminist art. Their interest in this topic stems from teaching classes in African, African-American, Native American, Chicana, and feminist art, as well as a course first offered last year called Queer Eye for Art History. As we begin, uh, let's consider our defini a definition. Uh, how did we get here? Uh, Trabian Shorter's asset framing engages narratives that define people by their gifts or assets instead of those challenges that they may face. Although Shorter's may have been directing his approach to the education and youth programs, his model for pedagogy may well prove useful in the college art history classroom, a space where we create narratives on a regular basis and these narratives probably affect our students more than the facts and research that we share in a given classroom. This is something that's haunted me for the last couple of years when I have seen depression and anxiety come to the forefront for my students. And the stresses have seemed all the more profound for our marginalized or underserved students. My focus has been on looking for ways to offer a better environment for brown and black students, as well as those who are part of the LGBTQAI plus communities. Okay, there does appear to be a psychological or cultural power to the narratives we construct in the classroom. Shorter's observations, based on the work of psychologist Daniel Kahneman, argues that we internalize what we see as part of a narrative before we even employ the conscious mind. This suggests that we have an even more imperative role for how we study the visual arts. 
Yes, definitely. You know, and I have to say, Chris, I was just, you know, stunned to read in Larry Kim's article about marketing strategies that our immediate impression of an image happens within the first 50 milliseconds of seeing it. I mean, just think about that for a moment, right? We spend a large portion of our lives online and approximately 85% of communication on the internet is visual. So this means that we are inundated with images on a daily basis and whether we're conscious of it or not, we're internalizing these images as part of a narrative. So, you know, you're right that this has important implications for us as teachers. Narratives get created about artists, whether we as scholars and educators are aware of it or not. And, you know, in my experience, graduate school didn't teach us to think in terms of narrative. Yet, once I was teaching undergraduates in the early to mid-2000s, I mean, I discovered, I think as many professors have, that it was becoming harder with every year to maintain the interest and focus of the students in my classes. And so I started thinking a lot about the power of stories, about how history is mostly story, to quote Ken Burns. And stories can be compelling. I mean, in part because they make us feel something about what we're learning. And in Maya Angelou's words, people will never forget how you made them feel. So I really wanted to consciously incorporate narrative which is a part of storytelling into my way of teaching and writing, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. And at, at that point, I'd never heard of asset framing. I mean, how did this interested narrative impact your decision to write about Frida Kahlo? To me, your book is a form of asset framing. Wow. Well, thank you. That's a great you know, honor to hear that. You know, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, I guess I was, I was always excited when something came out about Frida Kahlo, new, new information. And a lot of it was, was wonderful. But I noticed that there was a predominant narrative, right, that it, which was largely that of victim, the Mexican woman who suffered from physical and emotional pain and who created autobiographical art about her suffering. And I just thought this was a limited narrative. I mean, I almost, I often felt that her agency was missing from the narrative. So for example, she was often reacting to her husband instead of forging her own path. And I wanted to look more closely at Kahlo's creative development and her ultimate breakthroughs while living in the United States in the early 1930s, when she's just beginning to come into her own as a person, an artist, and she's only in her early to mid 20s. Now, this is a time when some scholars said she didn't think of herself as an artist. Rather, they would say she thought of herself as Diego's wife. But I set out to detail a different story in a book for both the general reader and students of art history. So the book is based you know, upon factual information. I gathered it over many years of research. But the style of the writing is one that comes out of narrative nonfiction. And I find that my, my students who are also in their early 20s, respond to Kahlo's coming of age at a perilous time in the United States. And many of them really identify and take solace in the fact that Kahlo was able to persevere during these difficult times and not just put her pain on the canvas or metal plate, but transform her pain into powerful symbolic art, including political art. And she did so using the tools you know, of an artist, and an intellectual. Now, just to be clear, 
You know, I don't think any one main narrative defines a person's life or art. I really think there are many narratives. And so we as scholars and educators, we ultimately decide, right, which aspects of an artist or an artwork that we want to emphasize. And it actually reminds me uh, a bit of something the journalist Amanda Ripley stated in an NPR conversation with Anna Sale. She said that what journalists include and what they don't include matters, right? That stories tend to be gloom and doom because they lack three important elements, hope, agency, and dignity. And I think these three words are really significant for pedagogy and they tie into asset framing. If we aren't aware of how we are framing the narratives we present in class, then we too run the risk of presenting doom and gloom to our students, including the artist as victim, particularly when teaching artists who engage with issues of race, gender, and class inequality, hatred, and violence. So, you know, ultimately, I think probably like most, I want to help my students to think critically and to better understand how to quote unquote read images, but I don't want to cause harm. So for example, you know, some students may feel re-traumatized by looking at and discussing certain images. I know. When the topic comes closer to home in the United States with racialist stereotypes such as Betty Sarr's liberation of Aunt Jemima of 1972, and even offensive words uh, found in Faith Ringgold's Flag for the Moon of 1969, obviously I'm not sharing Uh, the other title for the work. I mean, in those situations, I can always come back to Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House and develop a discussion from there. But Lorde's famous statement isn't as useful for explaining the reclaiming of stereotypes today. What I've found is that my students are more rigid about what is right and what is wrong. To be fair, I am one of those faculty members who avoid showing any imagery of lynching at all costs, if possible. This has also become a discussion for our first-year seminars at the college. Our country's violent history is very real, particularly after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Artists respond, but how do we present an honest narrative that inspires without potentially harming? How do we frame that narrative? Yes, very important questions, right? I mean, our country's violent history, as you pointed out, is very real. And it's unfolding even right now, not just you know, in the, in the last couple of years, but right now, every day. And we can't ignore the impact. I mean, clearly many of our students are struggling with mental health issues. And you know, I too am really concerned. So yeah, the last thing I want to do is to show an image or discuss it in a way that causes harm. So I never show photos of lynchings. But if artists are engaging with difficult and painful topics or images, such as racial violence and lynchings, does this mean we don't teach them due to a concern that it could cause harm? So for example, all right, Aaron Douglas depicted an image of lynching in his mural an ideal of the Deep South from 1934 by showing feet and some rope dangling from a tree. Now, we don't see the person's body or face. It's still disturbing, but it's not as graphic. So I wonder, okay, I'm wondering if this image might be a way into a complex topic concerning racial violence in the 1930s. Um, One way to frame this discussion 
might be to focus on the agency of people like Ida B. Wells, who were on the front lines, you know, advocating for the federal anti-lynching legislation, which just passed, by the way, in March, Mm -hmm. Um, or artists like Douglas, um, Hideo Noda, and others who are attempting to use their art to take a stand against racial injustices and possibly to affect social and political change. Now, I don't have a clear answer to my own question about if or how to teach this painful subject, but what I can say is that Shorter's asset framing helps to clarify that if we only focus on the pain of racial violence and discrimination, we do run the risk of defining Black artists solely by the challenges they faced. Okay. Then the question becomes more about what we include in our narratives. Can we rewrite or reframe those negative narratives? Can we find joy instead of pain? The big question is how can art affect change and provide the hope tied to personal agency and the dignity that's missing from today's depressing news as discussed by Amanda Ripley in that NPR story earlier this summer? Right. Yeah. And and these are all such important questions. And I often ask my students these questions, ask them to come up with their own answers too. But I'm also curious, Chris, who do your students respond to in consistently positive terms? Kahinde Wiley, hands Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. One of my students from a social justice class that I taught for gender and sexuality studies stated that Wiley was, get this, the only artist that addressed social justice in terms of race and gender without exploiting negative stereotypes, such as Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, or even variations on the exploited image of Sarche Bartman. Right now, I'm thinking about the work of Betty Saar and Renee Cox that I find powerful. The subject matter challenged the right colonialist narrative of the museum and culture at large. But at the same time, I find the Gen Z student is much less willing to make allowances for subject matter that might inflict any sort of pain on others, no matter what the purpose or context. Now, do you find Wiley's work useful in the classroom? For me, there's a palatable energy among my African-American students in class when the portrait of Barack Obama appears on the screen. It's powerful. I'd say it's even more than, oh, I recognize this painting. I can feel the energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely would say I feel... Uh, Students come alive when I talk about uh, Wiley's work, and I typically begin my art appreciation class with a discussion of Napoleon and the role of art as propaganda. You know, we discuss, of course, David's Napoleon crossing the St. Bernard, and we establish why Napoleon looks like a hero. Then we discuss which aspects are false and why the painting can be considered propaganda. But then I bring in Wiley's Napoleon leading the army over the Alps, and we discuss the effect of Wiley inserting a Black man into a famous painting of a white hero. And I do this for many reasons, but one is that it certainly draws our attention at the beginning of the course to the absence of the Black male hero in art and popular culture. And then we can ask, who else is absent? But in this case, we're also looking at the presence of the Black man. And the discussion that ensues is always fascinating. 
We discuss how Wiley transforms our ideas of the male hero as white, heterosexual, and macho. Uh, Wiley began his paintings of Black men, as you know, after seeing a mugshot of a Black man posted on the streets of New York. And this provided right, the impetus for a new kind of art. Wiley himself says, quote, Black men have been given very little in this world, and I, as an artist, have the power, potential, and will to do something about it. And that's what he's done. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think Wiley's work is popular with students because he's re repositioned and redefined the Black male subject in art and in culture in a manner that is empowering. And so, of course, Wiley talks about portraiture as a field of power, right? One that was typically one that was typically denied Black men. And so when he inserts Black men into that field of power, he talks about how he's bestowing power upon his sitters. And also, I would say he's challenging the white gaze. And I think students uh, also respond to Wiley's work because he's challenging our stereotypical notions of masculinity, right? The way he replaces the treacherous St. Bernard Pass with the red background decorated with undulating, ornate, Rococo-inspired gold designs is significant as the Rococo was considered, quote unquote, feminine. And Wiley has said of this painting that he's, quote, taking little jabs at masculinity. And of course, we can't leave out the sperm swimming between and over the background designs, which also take a jab at the bravado, he says. Um, he says, taking this masculinity down to its most essential components. And so, yeah, you brought up President Obama's portrait. So obviously, this is a, a shift for Wiley, which he's acknowledged. He, he now is, he was faced with painting a man who he describes as the most powerful man in the world. And so for Wiley, he says President Obama's power is his connection to people. And we get that in the portrait. You know, he leans in, his gaze is strong. Is he listening? And I just saw the portrait in person in San Francisco. And I have to say that the crowd's trying to get closer to take pictures in front of him really emphasize the connection that people feel with the man. So there, there's this intimacy with viewers, but also I think between President Obama and the gorgeous setting of flowers and leaves that he's embedded into. And of course, flowers traditionally have been considered a female symbol. And so once again, uh, Wiley is undercutting our expectations of the powerful male subject, right? It's not that President Obama doesn't exude power. It's just a different type of power. Mm -hmm. One that's, you know, we might say it's stripped of the trappings of what we might call today toxic masculinity seen in David's portrait of Napoleon. And so I think one of the things that's really it fascinating is that when you show these two works in class, you know, students see how Wiley was trying earlier on in his career, right, with Napoleon leading the army to uh, create a shift and how we view Black men. Then we get to the President of the United States. You know, he's really come a long way in his career. Uh, that is Wiley. And so maybe art can shift people's consciousness. And I think that's a powerful concept for students to ponder. Absolutely. I mean, I use that very same comparison in my first year writing class. In my feminist art class, we looked at another artist who has a similar approach in terms of reconstructing the narrative of the museum. And that's Micheline Thomas. She actually tells CBS News a reporter, Nancy Giles, 
about her portraits of women. She says, it's about them looking out at you, demanding to be seen, demanding the validation. Look at me, I'm here, I exist, I'm present. For me, this relates very much to the gaze that's included in Wiley's work, but it's also about defying the gaze through collaboration with the sitter. For her, it's about validation in terms of loving Black women. The first thing that comes to my mind is Bell Hook's oppositional gaze. But I'm thinking in particular of Thomas's Den Un Pre Belle Negres that's at the Jocelyn Museum. The model stares out at the viewer with confidence. She is in control. However, the title alone, Din Untre Bel Negres emphasizes her beauty and desirability. There are two types of validation that Thomas is working with here. First, there's this deliberate reference to Manet's work that was included in uh, Denise Morel's Posing Modernity, the Black model from Manet to Matisse and Matisse to today. And also a reference to a portrait of uh, Laura or Lore, which in fact Morel makes reference to in her exhibition, Posing Modernity. Morel was looking at Manet's own documents that identified a model as Lore Untre Belnegres, the very words used by Thomas for Din. Now, of course, the earlier museum title for the work, La Negresse, is a racialist term today that makes the Black model anonymous. But with this work's new title that Morel found, lore is no longer marginalized or erased from history. Morel further reports that with the arrival of the Posing Modernity Show in Paris, the Musée d'Orsay curators, along with the directors of the Louvre, welcome the idea of renaming similar portraits in the museums, including Marie Gamine Benoit's Portrait of a Negress, now entitled Portrait of a Black Woman, Portrait d'une Femme Noire at the Louvre, and perhaps someday we'll be able to call this work Portrait of Madeline, uh, a recognized person. Um, this is a change with a capital C that is validation. The importance of this portrait is all the more central in the students' minds when they are made aware of its place in Beyonce and Jay-Z's 2018 video in the Louvre. <clears throat> now, this brings me back to uh, Thomas again. Why I want to make reference to her work is that Thomas's portrait of Din also appears in the Posing Modernity show uh, by Morel or put to curated by Morel, that I think has changed our view of Impressionism and the role of Black women in modernism. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It's very powerful to learn all this new information and to, to, re, to rethink these ideas. And also just the naming alone, uh, as you pointed out, is so powerful, um, especially if they can you know, give uh, a name like Portrait of Madeline. And I, so Muriel's scholarship, certainly in her exhibition, really give more agency then mm -hmm. to the, you know, so-called generic Black woman in modern art. You know, it's wonderful to know that Lore lived 
10 minutes from the artist in his northern Parisian <laughs> neighborhood, a place that saw an influx of Black migrants after the French abolition of territorial slavery in 1848. Now, I have to admit, though, I was a bit surprised to hear Muriel say in an interview that when she was taking art history classes between 1999 and 2014, one of her professors discussed Manet's Olympia, but never mentioned the Black woman. Now, this was relatively recent, and it really foregrounds how an art historian can amplify absence, essentially erasing a figure from art history by not discussing that figure. I mean, even the critics of the time when Olympia came out discussed the Black woman. Of course, they did it in racist language, but they did discuss her. So it seems to me that the art historian um, definitely has a way in to talk about at least that kind of language and what that meant. Now, Murel, on the other hand, right, she says that Manet depicted Lore as a person of significance. And so she wanted to, you know, show Lore in a new light. And in general, Murel wanted to give, she says, Black women visibility. And so I think what's also important is she has said that as a museum curator, quote, she wants to create an incubator for minorities with new ideas, end quote. So her scholarship and her position as a curator at the Met, I think also offers then hope, agency, and dignity. And I'll just say also that I agree with you about uh, Thomas's work, that it's about you know, validation in terms of loving Black women and defying the gaze uh, that is the male white gaze through collaboration with the sitter. And I think about her uh, other painting called Marie, uh, Reclining Naked Black Woman from 2012, created while doing a residency at Monet's home in Giverny. And then this reminds me of Faith Ringgold's Picasso studio uh, in 1991 from her French collection. Now, these nude Black women in the paintings exist within the realm of white French male modernism on some level, and yet they are being reframed from you know, passive, nameless, and quote-unquote hideous into strong, beautiful, and empowered Black women. And I'm wondering if um, Thomas's Marie and the title of her painting might be a reference to Ringgold's William Marie. Uh, and so that's sort of fascinating to me. But also, I think I want to point out there are some important differences between these works. For one, whereas Ringgold's model poses for Picasso, Thomas's model appears to be alone, enjoying herself, prompting me to think of Thomas's statement, quote, my gaze is the gaze of a Black woman unapologetically loving other Black women. <laughs> I just enjoy, I sort of revel in that statement. I uh, do too. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. too. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> the presence of that oppositional gaze, though, or just talking about the gaze also reminds me of Bisa Butler's quilts. I'm fascinated by them, but Let's go a slightly different direction. Earlier, I brought up the challenges of teaching the work of an artist who employs racist stereotypes as a commentary that critiques and reclaims a figure, as is the case in Betty Sarr's The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. Okay. Inevitably, my students compare that work to the quilt of Faith Ringgold. What do you think about Ringgold's 1983, Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima quilt? Mm -hmm. Well, I agree that, 
you know, showing the racist imagery, even if it's a critique, has the potential to trigger some students. But it is possible that Ringgold's Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima might be a way into this discussion. I'm fascinated by how she approached it. You know, she took on the stereotype of Aunt Jemima, but she does it in a different way from Betty Zarr. And I love Betty Zarr's work too, but it is a different approach on Ringgold's part. So instead of using the racist image of Aunt Jemima and the racist story, Ringgold created a story quilt and rewrote her story and created a new image. And therefore, Ringgold reframed the narrative that had been created by the white businessman, Chris Rutt. So, you know, back in 1889, Rutt took the image of Aunt Jemima from a minstrel show where he saw a performer in blackface singing old Aunt Jemima. And then to help sell the pancake mix, several stories were created about this fictional character, Aunt Jemima, who was a, lo a loyal uh, cook working on Colonel Higby's Louisiana plantation. So Ringgold completely changes her story. And in doing so, gives Jemima a type of agency she never had before. Uh, now, to be fair, you know, not, not everybody might see it this way. I know Ringgold's daughter, Michelle Wallace, did not agree with her mother. Nevertheless, one way to think about the Black artists who took on racist images as part of an important dialogue in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is that these types of critiques ultimately gave way to Aunt Jemima's image first being updated in the 1980s and eventually eradicated in June 2020 due to the protests in response to the murder of George Floyd. And now the pancake mix is just called the Pearl Milling Company. And that reminds me of David P. Bradley's 2006 Lando Bucks, Lando Fakes, Lando Lakes. Bradley, who is Chippewa and Lakota, says, quote, for 500 years, American Indians have had everything taken from them. One of the last valuable things to own or that they own is their identity. Now that Indian identity has become a marketable commodity, it is being taken as well, end quote. I mean, just like we saw the arrival of the Pearl Milling Company in 2020, that iconic Indian princess was finally removed from the label or logo of Land O'Lakes Butter. There's some hope. Otherwise, when we constantly talk about this sort of commentary, we run the risk of just being a further reminder of racialist stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, you know, hope that can change, you know, I mean, hope, sorry, hope that change can happen, right? Mm -hmm. Resonates with, oh, I think, you know, a lot of different artists. So it just depends on who we choose. But I'm also reminded now of another artist, um, Shosho Esquiro, whose art and fashion designs are really, uh, I find very powerful. As a Casca Dina Cree and Scottish fashion designer who grew up in Canada's North and Yukon, um, Esquiro talks about learning how to sew from her, her mother and how she takes traditional techniques to create clothing and textiles to pay homage to her Casca Dina and Cree roots. But also what she does is she wants to make political statements raise awareness, and provide First Nations people with agency. And so I just saw her work uh, not long ago in Vancouver. And one of the huge panels when I walk into this uh, gallery is resistance and protest. 
And the didactic panel gave thanks to all the activists and laid out the important issues to continue uh, protesting. Also on Esquiro's clothes, she often writes racist expressions such as on the back of a beautiful shirt, you see written uh, in cursive, quote, they stole the children from the land, now they steal the land from the children. And then running down the front of a dress, there are beaded words, which really look like abstract designs until you look at the dress in a mirror. Then the words spell out, quote, kill the Indian, save the man, end quote. The famous words of Captain Pratt, you know, the superintendent <laughs> at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. So clothing as art is certainly something we've seen before, but Esquiro makes overt social and political statements with her fashion, which can be seen in gallery settings or at a recent Paris fashion show where her statements were amplified. I think we've become more and more aware of the role of uh, residential schools. Mm -hmm. I just learned that there were residential schools here in the state of Iowa. I had no idea. Whenever I think about this and the art world, I also think about Kent Monkman. Uh, he's also a pre-descent, along with his alter ego, his ever popular with my students, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle. And Monkman then manages to comment on the effects of colonialism and LGBTQA plus experience. But in particular, I'm thinking about his work, The Scream of 2017, which directly addresses, in a rather frightening way, the state-funded Christian residential schools in Canada. And I think it reminds us that artistic commentary can raise consciousness and contribute to change. I was surprised, surprised, sadly, that Pope Francis just visited Canada this summer and apologized for the church's active participation in a colonial institution aimed towards eradicating culture. Well, and in the end, genocide. We have found those graves. <clears throat> Not me personally, obviously. I didn't even think this would ever happen, but this involvement has also been referenced in recent discussions calling for the repatriation of First Nations artifacts from the Vatican Ethnological Museum that I visit every couple of years with my students. And these moments also call attention to other injustice, injustice, injustices in much the same way that the 2018 film Black Panther indirectly referenced the 1897 punitive exposition of Benin by showing items from Wakanda in a British museum as part of the film. My students get this. They've seen it, at least many of them have. But this also gives me a chance to remind students whenever I tell them about this horrific event that the Smithsonian board has voted to deassess 29 Benin bronzes this past June, in July, Germany returned two bronzes, and even more recently, a British museum agreed to return 70 objects taken. This gives my students a degree of hope. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because repatriation is an ongoing uh, issue, and it's, it's one that my students feel very passionately about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I find that this always generates, again, uh, uh, this is another topic that generates interesting conversations 
And I, you know, I try to yeah, bring in all these different examples of what's happening, what 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 objects are being returned, which which still need to be returned. And also, I think it's important to maybe tell our students that, you know, their voices can be heard. I mean, if they want, they could certainly let museum directors and curators know what they think mm -hmm. about repatriating objects in their collections back to the home countries. So I think, you know, whenever we can take some type of action, it helps to ease the feeling of, of hopelessness. And I really like it when artists empower viewers. And so I'm thinking right now about Ai Weiwei. Mm -hmm. There was an exhibit I saw of his in 2014, 15, uh, Ai Weiwei on Alcatraz, that I thought was one of the most interesting and innovative exhibits I've seen. You know, this uh, Chinese artist turned the former prison of Alcatraz into an art installation. And it was really one that provided a space for a dialogue about how we define liberty and justice, individual rights, and personal responsibilities, all important issues, even more so right now. And the artworks then address the situations of people around the world who have been deprived of their freedom for speaking out about their beliefs. And of course, this is something Ai Weiwei understands, right? He's been a vocal critic of the Chinese government. And in 2011, I'm sure as most people know, right, he was detained for 81 days and his passport was taken away. And so he wasn't even able to come to Alcatraz to design the exhibit or to attend the opening. He had to do it from afar. Um, so that's all, I think, very fascinating. But also at what I like is at the end of the exhibit, he uh, has these uh, postcards there that are they're addressed to different political prisoners, but you can fill them out if you choose to, and you can send them to those prisoners. And if you want to find out more about them, there's a booklet at the end of the exhibit that you can read. And so, you know, if visitors wanted to, they could write to one of the prisoners and it provided this possibility of turning visitors from passive viewers into active participants. And so by doing this, you know, Ai Weiwei is not ignoring the painful aspects of repressive governments, but he's also, he's really providing the possibility to act. Mm, absolutely. Whereas we see students very interested in repatriation, getting museums to change. I find with my LGBTQAI plus students that they have a different sort of passion as well. And that's a passion for the recovery of artists, artists who they might share a similar identity with. And this is where validation comes back into our discussion. Here's an example. Cassandra Langer reframed the interpretation of an artist, a particular artist, as a depressed lesbian with Romaine Brooks' self-portrait of 1923. And Langer was working, I think, in the 1990s at this point, although she certainly refined this work um, more recently. But by looking more closely at the environs of early 20th century Paris, Langer restores that portrait of Romaine Brooks to one of a powerful, accomplished, heroic figure who welcomes a woman's attention, okay? This reframing is based on a, quote, lesbian gaze, end quote, as coined by Langer, and it was transformative for my students in the Queer Eye for Art History course. First, we considered the earlier interpretations of the self-portrait and then compared Brooks's sapphic identity to the style promoted today by Kristen Stewart. Um, this makes it real for them. 
It also opened the door for a discussion of gender fluidity and a variety of possible LGBTQAI plus identities, including asexuality and transgender or non-binary identities. This is what I would describe as a hunger for information and a reframing of multiple historical figures, particularly with respect to transgender stories. This is in many ways why I appreciate our recent art journal that focused on transgender research, although it was probably aimed more towards the graduate student or the scholar than the information I typically uh, use in the undergraduate classroom. Now scholarship, however, is starting to change. Here's another example. It's only been in the last few years after the 2017 Gluck Art and Identity Exhibition at the British Museum that I have started to see a definition of Hannah Gluckstein as something more or other than a lesbian on the internet. If one would look maybe 10 years ago, you would by and large see her, uh, see them, see him, see, even I'm struggling, as identified as a lesbian. Yet, Gluck did not identify as female and sometimes preferred a term that was gendered male. Reexamining the successful experiences of a gender non-conforming individual like Gluck and their very existence now becomes another form of asset framing that provides validity and hope for some of our students. Uh, clearly, identity was no easier to negotiate in the past than it is today. Oh, yeah. That, that's very, very true. Uh, and I can really relate to a lot of what you just said in terms of my students. Um, also liking uh, uh, the Langer reframing of that Romare, uh, Romaine Brooks self-portrait mm -hmm. and the concept of the lesbian gaze. But in, in terms of also um, thinking about these identities and how we define them and um, thinking about you know trans artists, I, it makes me think about the South African photographer, uh, Zanele Mohole, mm -hmm. who, you know, creates photographs, certainly of the LGBTQIA plus communities in South Africa, but Mohole also emphasizes the importance of showing uh, trans people in her photographs. And so well, I think one thing that's fascinating is that while South Africa's constitution, you know, is the first apparently to outlaw discrimination based upon sexual orientation, um, you know, the LGBTQIA plus communities still face high rates of violence and, and murder. So, I mean, that, you know, again, of course, you could focus on that, but in terms of the idea of, of uh, you know, reframing, really what Mahole is, is wanting to do is she's, that the artist wants to be a voice for change, I think around the world, but certainly in South Africa. And so uh, they call themselves a visual activist. And in you know, 2006, Maholi began a series of black and white photos called Faces and Phases. And in the series, Maholi photographs people that she gets to know from the LGBTQIA plus communities and is, is also uh, like Thomas then interacting with them, giving them a certain level of, of agency and wants to show them in various poses that are meant to reject just the traditional frontal pose. And each person then has a strong gaze 
And Maholi allows the sitters to express themselves openly uh, without fear. So these are portraits of resistance, portraits that fight for the visibility of those within the LGBTQIA plus communities. And also at the same time, Maholi says that their quote, art aims to celebrate life, joy, and the beauty of community. And, and this is reminiscent of Tracy Michael Lewis Gidget's uh, article, Black Joy in Pursuit of Racial Justice. And in it, she actually quotes somebody else, Octavia Rahim, who says, joy is an act of rebellion. And so is allowing ourselves to feel our grief, end quote. That's an incredible thing. I have to sit still and think about um, <clears throat> that statement, joy is an act of rebellion. And this probably relates very directly to a number of conversations we've had at our college here in Iowa about addressing Black joy in the classroom. At the same time, I think joy is just plain um, necessary. Too many of our students have confronted the loss of family and friends. Too much of an emphasis on death can literally disable some of my students. It hits too close to home, whether you are talking about racially motivated violence or suicide linked to gender identity. Therefore, joy and community need to function as threads throughout our classroom narratives involving both LGBTIA plus students and students of color. It's so easy to be overwhelmed by grief or sorrow. The already difficult situation that we live in can be compounded by having a majority of students in a classroom uh, whose privilege blinds them to understanding the experience of marginalized participants. How do we teach a class uh, who has a large percentage of white privileged students when we're talking about difficult subjects? Same can be true in terms of having a class that's largely all heterosexual and then you have two people who identify queer and don't fit um, neatly in the spectrum that we're used to talking about. Well, okay, at these difficult moments, this is when I welcome a discussion of Max Colby's collages or Nick's cave sound suits. I mean, the trajectory of Colby's work takes us on her transgender journey with extraordinary effervescence. There we go. Her work is filled with doilies, ribbons, lakes, potholders, sweet little children and animals, almost saccharine, that seem to come from greeting cards. The work is reminiscent of Miriam Shapiro's homages of the 1970s and 1980s. Now, his work manages to be exuberant while addressing her personal identity. But at the same time, Nick Cave's sound suits also convey joy and energy, but do not foreground his orientation. This is also a lesson for the student. The work is filled with, uh, and that is Nick Cave's work, is filled with a powerful enthusiasm for life that seems to resonate with the same sort of beauty found in Yoruba ritual and dance from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, my, my students love Nick Cave's ornate installations of found objects and his sparkling sound suits, as well as the way in which, you know, he brings his sound suits to different cities to work with groups who will perform and dance them. And by doing this, Cave creates a sense of community, which is also reminiscent of Yoruba masquerades. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I guess, you know, this leads me to then want to say just a little bit about the teaching of African art. I mean, obviously we don't have much time to go into a lot of detail, but, you know, for for those of us who have knowledge and an experience of Yoruba masquerades, we know quite a, we know quite well, right, the beauty and the brilliance of the many layers of these masquerades. But I mean, for those students who have not taken an interest, say, in African cultures, Africa as a monolith is typically presented in the media right, mm -hmm. as a place of disease, poverty, and civil wars. So teaching African art certainly helps to provide students, and I'm thinking about undergraduate students in particular, with a deeper understanding of this vast continent. However, there are numerous problematic aspects to the field of African art, which again, I don't have time to delve into, but just take the words African art. That for me requires a discussion at the beginning of my class because the word art is really a product of colonialism as are many other aspects. But I mean, this doesn't mean that we have to view African creators and, and artists from the past and into the present as victims right, in a colonial or post-colonial world. And so once again, I do think agency is really important. So one of the things I like to do is to begin the class on African art with Amanata Forna's video, Through African Eyes, which explores the many complicated aspects of reappraising African art within its own context. And one of the main narratives to emerge then in my class as we move along, especially as we're starting to discuss the different uh, you know, works of art and visual culture, is that we, we start to see how African uh, artists, in quotation marks, really were able, were able in the past and, and still to adapt to change, which involves in part the ability to imagine or reimagine right, a slightly different visual form. And there are numerous examples of this, but one that just comes to mind would be how the Ashanti, for example, incorporated many items from Europe, such as canes and umbrellas, into their retinue of royal objects. Likewise, the weavers uh, among the Ashanti used the brightly colored imported silk for kente cloth, changing the white cotton with indigo red, indigo dyed motifs into, you know, the iconic style of kente we know today of these shimmering color combinations, which ultimately became a Pan-African symbol and which also is often made out of rayon. But then if you think about somebody like, you know, Elan Etsue, right, he took the traditions of kente and adinkra and transform these textiles into these large metal pieces that reference aspects of textiles, but which go beyond that category with his use of alcohol bottle caps and the references to slavery. So like Cave, you know, who transformed the, the feeling that he says of, quote, being discarded as a, a Black man when he first created his sound suits due to the Rodney King verdict, mm -hmm that he, he transformed that feeling of being discarded as a black man into these vibrant sound suits. Well, Ellen Atsui also transformed the traditional look and use of kente and adinkra cloth into a new form, right? One which incorporates a reference to the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade, yet which also kind of shimmers and dazzles when seen in person. And then I go back again to that, you know, quote by Rahim saying, joy is an act of rebellion. There's a lot to unpack there, but there are there are, and there are so many contemporary African and transnational artists, such as Sokari Douglas Camp, Wangeshi Mutu, 
and Yinka Shonabare, whose works raise all these important questions about the history of African art, colonialism, issues of identity, etc. And Shonabare's work, which you know typically features these headless figures wearing what appear to be African printed uh, fabric, really questions the authenticity of this fabric. And so the artist really points out that these printed fabrics are actually Dutch and British in origin. So it's printed fabric based upon Indonesian batiks that were industrially manufactured in Holland and then later in Britain and eventually in some West African countries, right? So the fabric, though, was first imported to Africa from the West. And this tangled web kind of forces us to ask, you know, what is African? What is European? And Shonabara says, you know, quote, what I find interesting is the idea that you cannot define Africa without Europe. So I'm interested in exploring the mythology of these two so-called separate spheres and in creating an overlap of complexities, end quote. So his installations often engage viewers in their assumptions concerning Africa and Europe. I agree that lines are blurred with his work. I mean, in particular, with, I'm thinking about Shonabar's Scramble for Africa in 2003. I mean, the boundaries are all blurred and opens up the question of who is at fault, who participates in colonialism. And I think his signature use of that Dutch wax fabric is an ideal example of something born out of colonization or colonialism, colonization, and Europe's desire for outright economic exploitation. The irony, however, that you pointed out is that the fabric has been transformed into a new art form that is now nearly synonymous with West Africa, uh, with unique signifiers that celebrate or validate cultural and site-specific experiences. I think this is a positive. It's a moment of transportation. Even more important, perhaps, is that production slowly may be shifting to West Africa. Yeah, I know, exactly. I mean, there's just so much there to, to unpack and it's fascinating. And, and it's also, you know, another example, right, of the ability to adapt to change and reimagine something in a slightly new way or form, which is what I think, you know, brilliant artists do. But, you know, I think as I'm starting to now think about our conversation ending, uh, although I could talk on and on with you about all these things that are just, you know, fascinating to me. But my thoughts are actually going back to the journalist, Amanda Riley's comments in When to Say No to the News, where she talks about how she couldn't watch the news anymore as the paradigm, you know, she says, is one of sensationalism and destruction. But not every story needs to only document pain or violence, even as powerful as those stories may be. I think our minds and our souls really need uh, to rest now and again and Many of our students are equally overwhelmed by today's stories and may feel the need to even skip a class just in order to protect themselves emotionally. I'm hearing more and more from students that they that's what they're doing. And so, you know, it's pretty common these days for me anyway, to hear students say that that um, they just need to take a day off for for their mental health, which which I fully support. And that's perfectly true here in Iowa as well, in the Midwest. And this sort of makes me all the more aware of the weight we bear on our shoulders as art historians, or I guess any uh, professors in the classroom. 
because we choose the narratives we present. But I think this is where asset framing can come into play. Now, it isn't that we haven't been empathetic towards the needs of our classes for a number of years. All of us has, have been, at least I assume that's the case. It's just that asset framing provides us with a model and a term that help, can help us unpack our concerns about being the most supportive teachers that we can be. Our concern is not over so-called white guilt in the classroom. When I've talked about the subject before with some of my colleagues, they've questioned me on that. Instead, I think what you and I want to do is find a balance between one, providing accurate information about the ugly aspects of our history, and two, avoid crafting a class that's just directed towards the needs of a privileged audience and does not consider those from marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And, and looking for, for models that we can, you know, employ, we can hold up, whether it's artists or art historians like Denise Murrell, who provides not just an example of the, the scholarship that reframes the Black experience and how we understand modernism, but offers us a story, right? Her mm -hmm. own personal journey in the art history classroom that, again, began in 1999 taking classes at Hunter College, earning graduate degrees from Columbia with the completion of a PhD in 2014. So it's this recent history. Mm -hmm. And her experiences in the art history classroom really helped form that the scholar that she is today. And so when taking an art history survey course, presumably back in, I'm thinking 1999, she had this professor who neglected to even address the Black figure in Manet's Olympia. I remember when you brought this up earlier in our conversation. This still seems surprising to me, as I swear that I was aware that the Black figure in Olympia's name was Lore. I knew this, and for that matter, T.J. Clark's argument for Olympia's choice was published in 1984. How can you avoid talking about the presence of the, the Black woman in Manet's Olympia? It's confusing. I know it is confusing. I mean, I honestly, I, I, yeah, I don't understand it either, but it, what it brings up for me is how, like, once again, how important our roles are in the classroom and the roles of the, the teachers that you, that you and I had in the past, because, you know, Morel had a different experience with Linda Nochlin, right? Uh, because of Nochlin's perspectives, she allowed Murel in her seminar class to explore the relationship of Manet's portrait of Lore to the model's presence while she was taking a class with her at NYU. And that was a critical step for, for Murel to reimagine the significance of Olympia as a commentary on France, not long after territorial slavery you know, was formally ended. So absence can inspire the work of art historians and artists but hopefully, right, we're moving in a direction as teachers whereby we're more aware of these absences and are taking proactive steps to provide our students with the presence of a wide array of artists, you know, in terms of race, class, and gender identities. So I think hope, agency, and dignity can only be conferred really by the recognition of presence. And I mean, I'm going back to Wiley again, because I think this is what Wiley's work provides. 
It's one of the reasons his paintings, I think, are so popular with students. You know, I believe that art is powerful right, in its ability to impact people on a deep level and to even help effect social and political change. And Wiley is a great example of an artist who set out in the early 2000s to change the way that Black men are perceived within a racist world. And some 20 years later, I think he's succeeded on many levels. You know, he's gone from the margins to the mainstream with his work shown on Empire, one of the most popular TV dramas. He's painted famous Black men. And of course, the most famous man of all, uh, President Barack Obama. And Wiley has said that when his portrait of President Obama was released to the public, he says the internet blew up. He said it was trending on every media platform. And it surprised even him. After both though Wiley's portrait and Amy Sherald's portrait of Michelle Obama were unveiled in 2018 at the National Portrait Gallery, I think it's fascinating that their annual attendance rate went up from 1.1 to 2.1 million. I'm not surprised on one level, but I do find those numbers impressive. And according to the National Portrait Gallery, these paintings have an unprecedented impact on art and American society. And this was made clear to me when I saw these portraits, right? When people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds were crowded around them. And overhearing some of the comments and experiencing the works themselves, I was overcome with such emotion that um, I, it, it, it was very uh, an intense experience. So if Wiley has given dignity and agency to Black males, then Amy Sherald has given dignity and agency to Black women and girls something that the Parker Curry photo attests to, right? As we see this little girl mesmerized by Michelle Obama's portrait. And ultimately, the popularity of Wiley's and Cheryl's paintings give me hope. I still remember the first time I saw Ben Hines' photo of that two-year-old little girl looking up at Cheryl's portrait of Michelle Obama. That photo went viral. It inspired, I think, all of us. And in many ways, this leads us right back to the importance of dignity and validation of those who are marginalized by the histories or narratives constructed in the past. Final thought from the two of us. Quote, you never know whose life you might transform by just an image of recognition and representation. Thank you, Micheline Thomas, for that quote. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thank you for the discussion. Mm -hmm.